The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus went to the district of Tyre. He entered a house and wanted no one to know about it, but he could not escape notice. Soon a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to drive the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied and said to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's scraps. And then he said to her, For saying this, you may go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. When the woman went home, she found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The Gospel of the Lord. We have a pair of very challenging readings placed before us today. Beginning with that rather frightening first reading. And one might say, well, Father, no one, no one dies, no one is hurt. What is so frightening about that reading? It is precisely because of about who that reading is about. We have spent several days hearing of the great wisdom and faithfulness of Solomon. And suddenly, as if out of nowhere, we see that situation change. And that should give us pause. And in fact, if one reads through the first book of Kings, the story of Solomon, literally right after the account of the Queen of Sheba, which we considered yesterday, is this lengthy accounting of Solomon's wealth and successes in all of their wondrous magnitude. And then, right after that, this account of the fall of Solomon. This fall from that lofty height to which he had been raised by the Lord. And there is nothing in the tale of Solomon that really prepares us for this. All we have seen is the steady increase of his status, the steady increase of his wealth, the great celebration of his wisdom, which touched nations far away. And then we hear that while all of that was happening, something else was happening to Solomon. Something happened in a way that he who had been celebrated for his wisdom falls into the folly of idolatry. And in a way that marks him as very different from David, his father. Just as Solomon's wisdom as he begins his reign was greater even than the wisdom of David, we see that for all of his flaws and imperfections, David had something that Solomon, his son, did not, which was a relentless faithfulness in his heart, a jealousy for the honor of God, that his son, at some point at least, 
did not possess. And in this, Solomon is not like David, his father. And one might say, but Solomon, okay, he burned sacrifices to foreign gods, but David murdered a man and took his wife. How does that make David somehow more pleasing in the eyes of God than Solomon, who didn't do that? And the answer is, look at what happens when both are confronted with their sin. Each time when David fails and is confronted by a prophet with what he has done, David's first move is to acknowledge it, to repent of it, and to cry out for forgiveness, even as he submits to the punishment that will come to him. Note the movement. Note how that is very much like how we begin the liturgy when we gather for Mass. Let us acknowledge our sins, and in doing so, prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. And note what we see with David. Time and again, yes, he does fail the Lord, but when he becomes aware of his failure, he grieves because of it. And he grieves not because of what he stands to lose, he grieves because he has wounded the Lord whom, in fact, he does love and tries to love. Solomon, for all of his wisdom, Note what happens when the Lord himself confronts Solomon. It is not a prophet who is sent to Solomon. It's not Nathan. It's not Gad. Rather, it is, a prophet. It is God himself who says to Solomon, because you have done this, here is what will happen. The Lord confronts him with his wrong, and Solomon says nothing. We hear no apology. We hear no word of repentance. We hear an odd and passive silence. How far the wise man has fallen. How far his heart has fallen into a certain self-indulgent numbness. What a disturbing example this is, if we're honest. And if one like Solomon can fall, who among us is immune? If one like Solomon could become so foolish, who among us is so secure that he or she never need worry? But we also see that there is hope for us. We may never be so wise as Solomon was, but we can aspire after the faithfulness that marked the life of David, his father. A faithfulness that even though it produced its own share of failure, was rooted in a love that knew how to apologize and to seek forgiveness. David, while he may momentarily forget the Lord, never forgets him for long. Solomon, however, at some point is so caught up in the business of managing the kingdom, 
and of forging alliances with foreign powers by multiplying his marriages. In the middle of all of that cosmopolitan movement finds himself compromising, finds himself saying, for the sake of this wife, and for the sake of this wife, and for the sake of good relations, worldly wisdom. Let's maintain the peace by admitting some things into Israel that should not have been there. And this is a horrible crime, not simply because it is Solomon's personal unfaithfulness. He's the king, who also sacrifices in the temple. And the example he sets for the people is first that it's okay to do both. It is okay to honor and respect these alien gods who are not gods at all and go through the motions of faithfulness in the temple. It is okay to divide your heart between the Lord and someone else. It is all right to compromise your faith for the sake of your family. That is the other message that he sends. This is something that the faithful have struggled with across the centuries. Solomon is not unique in this issue. How often is it that simply in the context of marriage, someone begins as faithful and fervent and yet over time falls away into a certain mediocrity, even a certain indifference, even to the point perhaps of leaving the church. It happens. And this is not to say that marriage is bad or that trying to make marriage work is a bad thing. But it is, it is saying that, again, real wisdom learns to put first things first. And that correct ordering of priorities is what at some point fell away from Solomon. And if we can risk teasing something out from the fall of Solomon, because Scripture doesn't point an exact moment, it simply says, in his old age, his wives turned his heart. At some point late in life, much like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Solomon stopped listening to the Lord. Solomon stopped communicating directly with the Lord. At some point, Solomon rested in the memory of the word of the Lord, in the memory of the law of the Lord. But simply having the memory isn't enough. Simply knowing what the gospel says isn't enough if all it is is a memory to me. In a sense, then what I'm doing is I am living in my spiritual past. But a healthy spiritual life has to have an active spiritual present. And that's a tricky thing. That's a tricky landscape to navigate. All of us will, at some point or other, fall into that period of autopilot. All of us, sooner or later, because we're tired, because we're distracted, because life is just life, will find ourselves in moments where we are largely going through the motions.
that is a normal part of spirituality. The key is catching it so that we don't start living there. And Solomon at some point began to live there. And as he began to live, in a sense, in the memory of his relationship with the Lord, he was surprised to find out how easy it was to forget the Lord. And when that happens, when there is no active, and there hasn't been an active present in my relationship with the Lord, a now of my relationship with the Lord, it becomes much easier, not so much to sin or to fall, that's always disturbingly easy. It becomes much easier to sin and to fall in such a way that we don't even realize what's happening. We're not talking about one sin on the part of Solomon, we're talking about how in his heart he began to compromise and honor these foreign deities. And then, after having begun to do that, he actively set up the high places on the mountainside right across from the holy city, giving them a certain prominence, not just to his wives, but to his people. And this is unique in the history of Israel. Israel has always had its struggle with idolatry. It always had its struggles with surrendering to alien deities. What is different here is for the first time the king, the leader, joins in and encourages it. The history of Israel up until this point was the Lord raising up judges and then kings who would not simply defend or govern the people, but who would model authentic worship, who would model authentic faithfulness. And we see here in the great king, Solomon, the wealthiest of all the kings of Israel, in worldly terms, the most successful of all of Israel's rulers, in worldly terms, more successful and greater than David, his father. But we see him fall in a way that plants the seed of unfaithfulness deeply in the soil of the promised land. And all of a sudden, the economic expansion of Israel doesn't seem as important. All of a sudden, the peace on its borders doesn't seem as important as it once did. All of a sudden, all of these measures by which we identify is a government successful seem a little bit empty because there's a certain moral rot that is introduced as well by the one who is trusted because of his reputation for wisdom. And the final lesson then is how cautious we must be always with regard to earthly rule and earthly power. Because to simply identify with the personality of the ruler, as we see here, risks making the ruler's sins my own. And that is the trap now that is set for Israel. The fact that from the highest source, what is wrong has been acknowledged. What is wrong has been promoted. And the people now will begin learning that lesson. 
and we'll see a struggle between faithfulness and unfaithfulness that takes place not just among the people, but even on the very throne of the heirs of David as we move forward. What a remarkably powerful story this is. It has a curious parallel in what we say about Satan. The angel of light, gifted beyond all of the other angels with beauty, glory, and skill, who in that unique blessedness rebelled against the Lord and fell, as Jesus says, like lightning from the sky, from the height of glory to the depth of failure and misery. This is not to call Solomon Satan or demonic, but it is to say that that pattern that pattern of the one in splendor and glory, gifted uniquely from heaven, at some point falls and crashes out of that giftedness into a certain failure. And unfortunately, like the spirit who roots that tendency in our heart, there is no apology. There is no repentance. There is simply an odd, stunned, passive silence. How unlike David, who likewise fell when he was at the height of his power, but who as soon as he fell, poured out his heart in grief and repentance, seeking to be forgiven. And how important that example of prayer really is. The story of Solomon, the history of Israel, would have been very, very different, we would think, had Solomon found the moral character, the moral courage in his heart to do that after the example of his father. And we see here, in a certain sense, the real greatness of David. It's not his greatness merely as a warrior. It's not his confidence in the Lord that won him many battles. It was this unrelenting desire, imperfect as it was, flawed as it was, to belong to the Lord and to serve the Lord. And while he may have got that wrong, he never rested in the wrong, but always sought to make it right. The most disturbing thing about our first reading is not simply that Solomon became corrupted and fell. It's that after his fall, he is so silent. After his fall, he is so passive. And now we see the wisdom that he lost is that wisdom which produces repentance. That wisdom which says, my relationship with the Lord is the most important thing. And if in some way I have wounded that, I must do something about it. And if we're honest, all too many of us around the world who style ourselves Christians often fall into the trap of Solomon, resting in our wrong, being content with our imperfection in a way that allows us not to move forward. We can make that odd silence of Solomon our own. 
And that is, in fact, why mass begins the way it does with the penitential act. Because it is so very important as we gather here to celebrate the mercy of God coming to us in our sinfulness, in our failures, and in our flaws. That to really receive and embrace that mercy, we have to acknowledge our need for it. And once we acknowledge our need for it, we, in, we necessarily open our hearts to it. And so note again, just the formula by which the penitential act begins. Let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. Not let us acknowledge our sins so we stand here feeling miserable. Not let us acknowledge our sins because we enjoy wallowing in our guilt. But let us acknowledge our sins so that we can acknowledge the truth of ourselves that we need the mercy of the living God. Because when we acknowledge our need for his mercy, then we are ready to celebrate. In just a few minutes, we who acknowledged our sins and so prepared ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries will come forward, sinners all, and stretch out our hands to the very sacred mystery himself. Jesus Christ, who desires not the death of the sinner, who desires not the mere chastisement or punishment of the sinner, but who desires that we be forgiven and given life. And note how beautiful that is. In our need for mercy, it is mercy himself who comes to us. Amen.